Me to the book of Romans. <clears throat> As we uh, continue our series through the book of Romans, we come this morning to Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17, but I'm going to read verses 12 through 21. I, uh, I typically do <clears throat> um, a sermon series for Lent, a Lenten sermon series, and if you're wondering why I'm, I'm not, uh, this year, why we're continuing through Romans, it's, it's really because I, can't hardly, I can hardly think of a more fitting uh, section of Scripture for Lent than for this section that we're entering into, Romans 5, really all the way through Romans 8. Um, just very, very fitting for the themes of Lent. Lent is a time to, as we've heard already, to focus on uh, our mortality and to focus on our sinfulness, our sinful condition as we journey with Christ to the cross and as we uh, anticipate and, and look to what he has done for us on the cross to deal with those problems of immortality and, and sin. And, and those two central themes of Lent, mortality and sin, are, are really at the heart of our text this morning, Romans 5, verses 12 through 17. So I invite you to pray with me as you ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word this morning. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, as we come together, Lord, uh, to your word this morning to open up your word, I, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, or we come as your children, we come as those of we've already experienced in worship, O oh Lord, as those who are, are sinful and forgiven by the grace that you've expressed to us and showed to us so lavishly through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray now, Lord, that you would take us deeper into a deeper understanding of our sin and our mortality and, and the, the beautiful gifts of grace that Christ has given to deal with these, these devastating problems. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you give us a spirit of submission to your word as we come together. I pray, Lord, that your word would be planted deep in our hearts, that we might uh, be transformed by it, that it might bear fruit of change for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. So this uh, picks up after the, the section where, uh, which uh, Pastor Ben uh, preached on last about having been... Uh, justified by the blood of Christ and the, the, the beautiful gift of justification uh, that we've been reconciled to God through him. And so Paul goes on to say, starting at verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now Paul kind of interrupts his thought there and goes, gets a little bit sidetracked and kind of picks up the thought again in verse 18. He says, uh, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. We're going to deal with those verses uh, next week and not really touch on them this morning. Verse 15, But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many 
died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And then again, we'll pick up these verses mainly next week as well. Uh, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated. Not long ago, uh, Lori got a haircut, and when she came home, she said it was the worst haircut she had ever received. And even I, who normally can't really tell what's good or bad or right or wrong about women's hair, uh, could tell that something definitely wasn't quite right. When Lori brushed it all straight back, uh, one side was about four inches longer than the other. And Lori said she would have to go back in to have them fix it uh, unless, she said, uh, unless maybe I could even it out for her. Now, I've been married long enough to know that there's something almost sacred about women's hair, uh, but I also know that haircuts aren't cheap. And so I was weighing those two options in my mind, and I said, well, sure, it should be easy enough for me to do the repair. And the next thing I know, I have a scissors in my hand and, uh, and you know, to set to work to undo the damage that had been done. And I have to say, I found it a little bit empowering to have the scissors in my hand, and I was quite pleased with the results. I, I cut off that, that longer section and, and uh, even did a little snipping here, a little snipping there, got a little bit creative and rounded things out, and, and in the end, was, yeah, I, I was very pleased with, with the results, and even Lori could agree that the damage had indeed been reversed. Now, the reason I share that with you is because... In our text this morning, we see that the, the trespass of Adam brought these devastating consequences, much more devastating than a bad haircut, to the human race. But Christ came as the second Adam to undo the damage. And, and here's one of the ways, one of the areas where my illustration breaks down, one of the many, I suppose. We see in our text that Christ came not only to reverse the damage that had been done in Adam, but he came to bring blessings that far outweigh the devastation. And so it would be a little bit like turning a botched haircut into a, a glamour shots masterpiece. The gifts that Christ came to bring far surpass the damage inflicted by Adam's sin. So as we enter into the text this morning, we'll see how the the trespass of Adam uh, brought two devastating consequences to humanity and how the gift of Christ uh, reversed and surpassed those consequences. That's where we're going 
And that's where the text takes us this morning. So we see first that the trespass of Adam brought sin to all of humanity. Uh, Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, and in this way he says death came to all people because all sinned, So Paul says here that sin entered the world through Adam and that in Adam all sinned. Now, we, have, we need to be clear about what Paul is actually saying in this text because there, there, there's, there's some nuances here that we, we need to be clear in our minds. There are some uh, who believe that at the core of our being, uh, there is something inherently good and, and untarnished by sin. That, that's a fairly common way to view to view that humans are basically good. They may believe that we are sinners, but we are sinners mainly by, by imitating Adam's example. This is the view that's known as Pelagianism. It's, a, it's a, a heresy that goes all the way back to the 5th century teaching of the British monk Pelagius, who was opposed mainly by Augustine and then by, many, by others as well. Uh, but Pelagius was, was a, a monk who taught that, that human nature is not inherently corrupted. And so it is at least theoretically possible, uh, Pelagius would say, not to sin, and, and, and those who follow Pelagi, uh, Pelagian's teaching, which are there are many today, so they would say it's at least theoretically possible not to sin because at the core of our being there is this, this untarnished sort of kernel of purity and righteousness. Uh, in his helpful little book called What is the Gospel, Greg Gilbert illustrates this view by way of analogy. He says that in the, in the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, there is what is said to be the largest flawless quartz sphere in the world. It's a little bit, it's a little bigger than a, than a, ba- than a basketball, and there's not a single detectable flaw in the entire thing. And, and Gilbert says that, that many people adopt the Pelagian view that, that human nature is like that sphere, now, now, most would admit that we commit acts of sin, but they, they view these sinful acts as sort of smudges and, and, and smears on the surface of that, that pristine quartz sphere. So at our core, there is, they would say, something inherently good and pristine. Now, Paul's teaching in this text about sin leaves no room for that idea. Our sinfulness, Paul says, goes all the way to the center, to the core of our being. We are by nature sinners, and as Paul says in Ephesians 2, therefore children of wrath. But this raises another question, and that is, well, how is it that we are sinful to the core? You see, that's the, the, the deeper question about human sin, and it's that, that deeper question that Paul answers in our text this morning. So when, when Paul says that sin entered the world through Adam and therefore all sinned, so this is, this is where we need to be, to be clear, and, and, and as difficult as this teaching may be, uh, I think it is very clearly what Paul is telling us in this text. So what Paul is saying is that Adam's sin was imputed to the whole human race. So when Adam sinned, all humans were counted as sinners on the basis of Adam's sin. That's, that's clear grammatically based on the, 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 the verb that Paul used when he says that, that all sinned. It's, it's clear in the, in the larger context of the passage that there's no escaping or getting around. This is what Paul is teaching. 
You see, central to, to Paul's thought throughout this text is the idea of, of headship or representation. Adam was uh, the, the head and the representative of the whole human race. And so all of humanity stands in solidarity with Adam. And so when he sinned, his sin was counted against all of us. Now, like I said, that is a difficult concept and teaching for many of us to embrace, especially in our in our individualized Western culture, not, not so difficult for uh, biblical culture where it was not nearly as individualized. But even if it is difficult for us to uh, accept and embrace, it is the clear teaching of Paul in this text. Now, I will also say that it is also theologically and biblically true that all humans inherit from Adam, a corrupted, sinful nature. That's also a theologically true, a biblically true statement, but that's not what Paul is, is saying here. That's a separate point. What Paul is saying here in this text is that in Adam all sinned, and that in, that in Adam's singular and historical trespass in the garden, all humans were counted as sinners. And if that's what Paul is saying, then I think we ought to remind ourselves, well, what was Adam's sin in the garden? And so we read in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, that the Lord God commanded Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So would Adam live in obedience to God's command? Would he live within the, the boundaries established by his sovereign? Would, would, he, would he accept his rightful place under God's rule as king? Well, of course, we all know what happened, don't we? Satan, the great deceiver, said to Eve, you will not certainly die if you eat the fruit, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And the woman took the fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband, Adam, and he ate. And so Adam and Eve's sin in the garden was fundamentally a sin of rebellion. We, we wonder why doesn't Paul talk about Eve in this text? It's because he sees Adam as the head or the representative of the human race. But So Adam and Eve's sin in the garden was fundamentally a sin of rebellion. It was a rejection of God as king. It was a treasonous grasping to put themselves in God's place, to be like him, to put themselves in place of, in place of his throne. And I don't know about you, but I find this to, be, to be, be helpful, although sobering, in our understanding of the, of the gravity of our own sinful condition. Because when we think of ourselves as sinners, I think that we tend to think of our own isolated acts of sin. And often, when you think of it that way, they don't really seem all that bad. I mean, we know that we mess up. We know that we violate God's commands. We know that we do things that God tells us not to do. And we know that some sins are worse than others. But all in all, all things considered, we don't really see ourselves as rebels against God. It just doesn't really compute. We don't, we say, we don't, it doesn't, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us. We don't feel, it doesn't, on the, when we look at ourselves, it doesn't seem like we are rebellious. We're not rebels against God. We see ourselves as basically good people who make mistakes now and then, kind of like, you know, basically good drivers who occasionally commit minor traffic violations. That's often how we think of our sinful condition. 
But if Adam's sin has been in fact imputed to us, then we begin to see the gravity of our sinfulness. If Adam's sin is counted against us, then it is his trespass in the garden that that marks and defines us. And then we begin to feel the gravity of the situation, don't we? For Adam's sin was, was categorically rebellion against God. It was a prideful putting of himself in God's place. It was a rejection of God's authority. It was a declaration of independence. It was a treasonous seizing of his throne. That is what has been counted against us, according to Paul. In Adam, we are all counted as rebels against the Most High God. And tied to this, this sinfulness, of course, is God's judgment. Paul reveals the result of Adam's sin in verse 16. He says the result of one man's sin was judgment that brought condemnation. In Adam, we are all counted as sinners, and we all stand under God's judgment and condemnation. What Paul means is that in Adam, we are all rightfully judged to be guilty and subject to the punishment and the penalty that, his, that Adam's treason deserves. And so if you're, if you're tracking, we, we, we begin to see that this is indeed a devastating reality. Which brings us to the second consequence, the second devastating consequence of Adam's trespass. The penalty of sin is death. And so the trespass of Adam made death reign over all people. Paul says, That sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people. Now, when Paul says that death came to all people through sin, he is talking primarily about physical death, which God had established as the penalty for sin. Uh, God said to Adam in Genesis 2, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then after Adam's sin, God put into effect this penalty, though by his grace and his mercy, he didn't put it into effect immediately. They didn't immediately die. God graciously allowed them uh, to live for, for a time afterward, after that act of sin. But God said to him, again, this is the judgment for his sin, dust you are and to dust you shall return. And then God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So physical human death is the penalty for sin. Adam's trespass brought physical death into human existence. That is what Paul is teaching. But this physical death also symbolizes the the deeper reality of spiritual death. So Paul is really talking about both things. He's talking about physical death, but as a symbol of spiritual death. The fellowship that Adam enjoyed with God in the garden was broken by sin. There was now a a distance, a a spiritual chasm, a, a separation between humanity and God. We read in Genesis chapter 3, And the Lord God banished Adam from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So there is this 
This banishment, this, this spiritual separation, this, this distance, this, this chasm between humanity and God, and this spiritual death is revealed climatically in the book of Revelation, where John describes it as the second death. He says in Revelation 21, verse 8, that the unbelieving will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, the, the, ultimate, uh, the ultimate spiritual death, the ultimate separation, the, the, the climactic, irreversible separation between God and, and unbelievers. This, John says in his vision, is the second death. But Paul says even more than that in our text. So, so we are, uh, you know, we are... Death, death has come into the, the world through Adam's sin, but Paul says even more. Not only did death come uh, to all people, but Paul says that death reigned over all people. He says in verse 17, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Now, that, that, that's an, that's a, that's an a important and a, and a loaded word that Paul uses. What does it mean that death reigns? Well, that death reigns means that we are under its rule. We are captives to its power. As the writer of Hebrews said, humans are held in slavery by their fear of death. In the words of William Lane, death is, is the devil's henchman who, who bludgeons humanity into submission. And this is true to our experience, to human experience, isn't it? I mean, all of life is, is lived under the, the tyrannical shadow of death. Every doctor visit is shadowed by the possibility that we might, that we might uh, have some disease or some prognosis that, that, that would lead to death. Every time a loved one leaves the house, we, we're plagued by the possibility that some accident might, might take them from us. Some of you... You've probably heard this story before, I, uh, and I wasn't planning on sharing with it, but there's enough new people here. This is about seven or eight years ago, so I think I can share it again. Uh, so about eight, maybe nine years ago or so, uh, Lori and I had uh, um, decided to have some work done in our basement, so we hired a contractor to do, some, the, to do this, this work in the, in the basement, and so he had people that he had hired, of course, to do the work for him, and one of the workers... Just got to the, he had to, you know, got to the point where he just was not, uh, not a good worker. He was, he made too many mistakes and too many, uh, just there were too many issues, and so the contractor had had to fire him. And uh, so he, he uh, the contractor fired this guy, and and uh, the next morning uh, he showed up to our house at the same time in the morning and began doing the work as if nothing had ever happened. So I, I called, you know, Lori, I was at the office and Lori called me and told me that. So I called the contractor and said, you know, did did you? fire this guy? And he said, yeah, I did. And I said, well, he's at our house working. And the guy was shocked to hear that the guy he had fired the night before was still working at our house as if nothing had happened. And then he said, well, is, uh, are, are Lori and the kids there? And I said, yeah, why? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, this guy, he didn't take the firing very well. Uh, and he just, there's something, I don't know, there's something really unstable about him. There's something really just kind of off about him, and, uh, and he was really upset and really angry when, when he got the news. And so, you're sure Lori and the kids are home? And he's like, yeah, they're, they're home. He said, well, you know, maybe, maybe see if you could, could, you know, get them away. Well, <laughs> you know, not the thing you want to hear, right? That there's some psycho who's at your house who had been fired the day before and is now angry. Then any, the, the, guy, the contractor said, he's the kind of guy that just feels like he could, he could snap. Well, again, not the thing you want to hear. And so... 
And so I, I began heading home. And I immediately called Lori, and, and you know, to and but she didn't she didn't answer. So I left a, a message on her phone, and said, you know, and explained the whole situation to her, and said, you know, just just try to stay away from this guy. The, the contractor has some deep concerns about him and unstable, all that. So just just maybe take the kids and go somewhere. And so uh, I hang up. I left the message. Then I'm driving, and I get about halfway home, and my phone rings, and and uh, and, and so I pick it up and. And there's this, this evil-sounding, scratchy voice that says, I have your wife and your kids. And just everything in that moment completely froze. I was just seized by, by this, this, this terror that this, this psycho man was going to do something to my wife and kids. I, and so death was just everywhere in my truck as I was driving home. It's this panicky, frozen kind of a feeling. And then after a couple of seconds of silence, it's Lori's voice laughing. She had one, she made the call and she had disguised her voice to sound like this, some evil psycho to make it sound like he was the one that had, you know, so yeah, again, that's the kind, you know, this, the, the, the cruelest joke that she's ever played in our entire marriage, and I'm still trying to find a way to get, to get back at her for that one. <laughs> but, but the point is that, that in that moment, that I, I, I felt so palpably that, that fear of death. That, that terror that comes with the, with, with the reality of what death could do to someone. How it could just take, in an instant, take everything away. And Paul says that this is what comes through Adam's sin. This fear, as the writer of Hebrews says, held in slavery by the fear of death. We can see what the writer of Hebrews means about living as slaves to the fear of death. The biblical writers lament death as something unnatural, something that that puts us on the same level as common beasts. The psalmist said people do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. The writer of Ecclesiastes spoke of death as an inglorious end, sort of the, the final capstone of a life of futility. He said the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. When a loved one dies, we rightly perceive something awful and monstrous about it. Now, Lori and I experienced this when we were in Minnesota a couple of months ago, uh, waiting for her grandma to die. So for five days, her family gathered around her grandma's bedside, uh, waiting and, and watching as she was dying. And so watching her body struggle to take its, its final breaths, watching her, her just sort of slowly slip from life into death with, with these, with these uh, uh, gruesome sorts of gasps and moans. It is a monstrous and ugly thing for a person to die. Said to the Corinthians that death is an enemy. And in even more vivid imagery, the prophet Jeremiah pictured death as a, as a prowler in the night, a, a grim destroyer and thief, he says. And this is all the, the product of the trespass of Adam. His trespass made the enemy of death reign over humanity. But of course, that's not the end of the story, is it? Paul shows us in these verses that the trespass of Adam brought indeed these, these devastating consequences. But the main thing, the main thing that Paul wants us to see in this text is, is that the gift of Christ outweighs the trespass of Adam. 
So Christ came not only to, to reverse the devastating consequences of Adam's trespass, but, but to reverse them in a surpassing and overwhelming measure of abundance. Paul says in verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. And he will go on throughout the verses to, to compare and to contrast and to show how, how much better the gift is in comparison to uh, the trespass. For he says, if the many die by the trespass of the one man, Adam, then how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? In other words, the trespass of Adam did bring these devastating consequences, but the gift of Christ so far outweighs and overwhelms the trespass. When Paul says that the gift of grace in Christ overflows to the many, he's using a Greek word, parasuo, that means to, it's a really strong, it's a, it's a really vivid, strong, it's kind of excessive word. It means to superabound, to be exceedingly excessive, to exist in such, in su in such an abundance that there, is, that there are leftovers. It's like when Jesus miraculously multiplied the bread and the fish for the multitude of 5,000. And there was such an abundance left over that the disciples gathered 12 baskets full. And that's the image that, that Paul is getting at here as well. The picture that Paul paints is that if the trespass, to think of it this way, if the trespass of Adam emptied the bucket of humanity, then the gift of Christ didn't just refill the bucket to make it full again. No, the, the gift of Christ, uh, that, that Christ brought such an overabundance of grace that it, that it filled the bucket and then it just kept on going. It kept, it kept being poured out and poured out and poured out until it overflowed the bucket and kept running down and created this massive pool around us. And Paul goes on to show how this overwhelming gift of grace in Christ changes specifically those two devastating consequences that he's talked about in these verses. The devastating consequences of Adam's trespass. And he shows us first how the gift changes or reverses the problem of sin. The trespass of Adam brought sin and condemnation to all humans, but the gift of Christ brings justification. Paul puts it this way in Verse 16, he says, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses, that's one of the differences, and brought justification. Now, Paul elaborates on this in verse 19 when he says, For just as through the disobedience of, of Adam, the one man Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man Christ, the many will be made sinners righteous. So here what Paul is saying, that in Christ we, we are not only declared not guilty of sin, which in itself would be an amazing gift of grace, but we are counted as righteous in God's eyes. In Adam, Adam's sin was, was counted against us, but in Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to us. And the righteousness of Christ far outweighs the trespass of Adam. And so for those who are in Christ, our condemnation brought about by Adam's sin is, is wiped away. And not only is it wiped away, but we are then considered as righteous. As Paul will say in Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the condemnation that was ours in Adam is now gone. 
It's, 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 not hold, it's not there, hold, it's not being held over us anymore. And even more than that, we are declared righteous. So the gift of Christ changes and overwhelms the problem of sin. And Paul goes on to show, secondly, how the gift of Christ reverses the problem of death. Paul says, if by the trespass of of the one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So again, we see how the, the gift outweighs and overwhelms the trespass. In Adam, death reigns over humanity. But for those who are in Christ, notice what Paul says. Paul doesn't just say that life reigns. That would be kind of an unequal reversal. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that, that, uh, that, we, that, uh, that we reign in life, right? So, uh, so we go from slaves and captives under the tyrannical rule of death to rulers with Christ in the realm of life. We go from, from slavery to royalty. As John, I think John Stott put it in such a helpful way when he says this. He said, formerly, death was our king. And we were slaves under its oppressive tyranny. What Christ has done for us is not just to exchange death's kingdom for the kingdom of life, which again would be an amazing gift of grace while leaving us in the position of subjects. But he said, no, instead, he delivers us from the rule of death so radically as to enable us to change places with it and to rule over it. We become those who reign in life, sharing the kingship of Christ with even death now under our feet. That's an amazing, amazing reversal, an amazing, overwhelming abundance of grace. In Adam, we were held in slavery to our fear of death, but in Christ, that, that slavery to fear is, is utterly abolished. As the writer of Hebrews put it in Hebrews chapter 2, he says, since the children have flesh and blood, meaning humanity, the children of God, uh, since the children have flesh and blood, Christ too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And again, this is, this is for those who are in Christ. This is for believers, not for those who are outside of Christ. This is the gift of grace to those who received Christ in true faith. In Christ, we no longer live under the tyrannical rule of death. In Christ, we, we claim victory over the grave. In Christ, we're able to say with Paul, with Paul those, those bold and, 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 and uh, defiant words, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In Christ, we're able to gather around the bedside of dying believers and even as we see death for the monstrous enemy that it is, we also see beyond the ugliness of death to the exhilarating beauty of resurrection life. And so again, in the case of Lori's grandma, we, we saw both of those things, the, the ugliness, the, the monstrosity of death, but also this beautiful hope that was hers through her faith in Christ. And so we were able to speak into the awfulness of death, the the comfort and the hope of all of the glories that awaited her on the other side. We were able to speak of John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth where there would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We were able to 
to sing beautiful hymns that express these, these beautiful, glorious truths. And we're able to speak and to hold in hope the breathtaking beauty of everlasting life in unbroken fellowship with God and fellow believers. I think C.S. Lewis captures this so well in his book, The, the Last Battle, his last in the series of the Chronicles of Narnia. When uh, the kids and the animals in, in the Chronicles of Narnia went from the shadowlands of life in this world uh, to the glorious land of life beyond, it was more beautiful than any of them could ever have dreamed. And it was Jewel, the unicorn, who put into words what they were all feeling. He said, I have come home at last. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, he said, though I never knew it until now. And Aslan, that great king of the country, invited them to go further up and further in. And so they began to run. And as they ran, to their astonishment, they found that they... That, they never, that their energy never faded. They could run faster than they had ever run before and without, without getting tired or out of breath in any way. And they ran through winding valleys and they ran up these steep hills and they ran across mountain lakes and they ran or swam, they couldn't tell quite which, up these great waterfalls. And to their delight, they found that the further they went into the land, the bigger and the more beautiful it became. And they came eventually to this green hill where there was this beautiful tree with, with leaves that were like silver and fruit that was like gold. And there at that, on that hill with that tree, they said they had a glorious reunion with those who had died before them, those who belonged to Aslan who had died before them. And Aslan, Aslan himself was there with them. And he said to them, gathered there together on that that beautiful green hill in the midst of this beautiful land, he said, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And so began for them, as C.S. Lewis says, chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is just a little glimpse of what comes through the gift of Christ. That we who were slaves to death have now become royalty, reigning in life, made to reign in life with Christ. And so the trespass of Adam indeed brought these devastating consequences of sin and death and will continue to reflect on those themes throughout Lent. But oh, the wonders of the gift of Christ. It brings glories and beauties that so far outweigh the trespass. It brings justification to sinners and the promise of reigning in life to those who had been enslaved by death. Let's bow together. Lord God, we praise you for the amazing gift of grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. A gift, O oh Lord, that so far outweighs and surpasses and overwhelms the trespass of Adam. I pray now, O oh Lord, as we come to your throne in a time of silent prayer and response, that you would 
work within our hearts, O oh Lord, a, a deep and abiding gratitude and hope that comes through the gift of Christ. Lord, hear our silent prayers. Lord, in Adam, we are all counted as sinners. Lord, there is within us this sinful condition that is there from the start, a sinfulness that goes all the way to the core of our being. Lord, Adam's sin counted against us, the sin of rebellion, the sin of rejecting you, and there's nothing that we can do within ourselves, O oh Lord, to rescue ourselves from this sinful condition and the condemnation that comes with it. But oh, the gift of grace that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who takes away the guilt and the condemnation of our sins. and declares us righteous in the eyes of our holy God and who frees us from the tyranny and the tyrannical rule of death that came through Adam's sin and gives us this beautiful, unimaginable promise of reigning in life with Christ. Oh Lord, we praise you. We give glory to you. For these gifts, Lord, are ours, not by anything within us, but only through Christ in us and what Christ has done for us. And so it's in his glorious and triumphant name we pray. Amen.